Today, on the Woodbridger Podcast, Hardening Pharaoh's Heart, The Ten Plagues of Egypt, and The Passover. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Ward Preacher Podcast. Alright, our Come Follow Me curriculum for this coming week will bring us to Exodus 7 through 13. Let's go ahead and get started um, with the first few verses in Exodus 7, which read, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of this land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt, and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So that's verses 1 through 5 in Exodus 7. Now, there's a part of this that the Come Follow Me manual talks about, um, and it's frequently in lessons. It's about the, the passage that says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And uh, certainly, as a member of the church growing up, we always kind of knew intuitively that God doesn't make people do bad things. People do bad things because they choose to do that. God is not making evil. Uh, People do that. And uh, they conspire with other evil entities, such as the devil himself, uh, to to help create evil. This is not a creation of God. But um, one of the things that may be surprising about this passage is that the Hebrew uh, in, in this passage is not mistranslated. When we look at this, it starts with the subject, ani, or va'ani, and I. Then the imperfect verb, Akshah, then the direct object marker et, then the noun leb for heart, and the proper noun to help describe the heart paro, pharaoh. Now, what we have here then is literally, I will harden pharaoh's heart. It's not mistranslated. It's literally God saying, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And that kind of flies in the face of all our understanding about free will. Why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Why is he making it less likely that he will do what needs to be done and save his people? And this is kind of important because 
Um, especially as we look at the JST, the Joseph Smith translation for this passage, it reads as follows. And Pharaoh will harden his heart, as I said unto thee, and thou shalt multiply my signs. And then it goes on. So that seems to actually contradict completely the, the actual Hebrew that's in there. Why is this translation here? If we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly, and this is translated correctly, then what's going on here? Um, I think this is worth thinking about, um, but it does have a, a straightforward way to understand this. The important principle behind this is that translation is an art, not a science. Let me tell you what I mean. A couple of years uh, back, my family and I went to Disneyland in Southern California. It was a great trip. Um, one of the memorable parts of this experience was the Jungle Cruise attraction. If you're unfamiliar with, with Disneyland and the Jungle Cruise attraction, it's a bunch of kind of cheesy animatronics, and there's a guide on a little riverboat type thing that goes around this uh, pre-outlined path and tells a bunch of dad jokes. It's really relaxing. The way, especially the way they have it set up or had it set up in Disneyland when I was last there, the line wasn't super long. You could go and sit down. It was a relaxing thing. And cheesy jokes. It was great. Uh, in Disney World, it's a little bit different, but I I mean, this isn't a Disney podcast, so we'll get to the point, which was, for whatever reason, on this Disneyland trip, our particular guide on that day, instead of going through, like, a variety of the jokes, he decided that he was going to use one particular joke at least ten times. This was like the go-to punchline. He kept coming back to that just to try it out. Um I've never had that experience before, but we still kind of liked it. It was a cheesy joke, but we, we liked it. This was the idea. He would point to some bamboo that, as we're on the boat, and he'd say, you know, bamboo can grow up to five stories tall. Some experts say six, but that's a whole other story. Um, and he just kind of repeat that joke. So it, it made it memorable. Now, the pun of that joke is the word story, which, of course, can either mean the floor of a building uh, or uh, meaning to measure the height of this bamboo, how high it is in terms of floors of buildings, or it can be a story that you tell, an account, either fact or fiction. Now, I know that explaining a joke does not ever make it funny, but imagine that you understand this, and you need to translate this into a language that doesn't have a word with a double meaning for story. What do you do? I mean, if you choose a word that means floor, or if you choose a, a word that means telling an account, either way, you've lost something in the translation. And if you choose two words, it's not really a pun, and it doesn't have the same impact as it does in English. The best translations artistically 
and creatively find ways to capture overall meaning rather than simply transliterating words. And that's vital to understand when considering the Joseph Smith translation. It wasn't made by diligently examining the meanings of Hebrew words as they're used in a variety of contexts. No, it was by the inspiration of God, who was there when it was written, who was there when it happened. He kind of has a better sense of the overall meaning. And that's vital because there is a sense that you can say God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but he didn't do it by forcing him to do anything. He set up these slaves, these petty people that he knew Pharaoh looked down upon and oppressed and thought that their, their language and their culture and their traditions were an abomination. He took these slaves and he set them up above Pharaoh and above all of Egypt. He challenged Pharaoh's pride and authority, even though he knew how Pharaoh would choose to respond. But that's vital because God did not make the choices for Pharaoh. He anticipated them. And he used these responses to show the whole world throughout time that the might of great empires and kingdoms, of high kings and pharaohs and governments, they're always temporary. But that God always has power to deliver those who love him. All right. As the plagues progressed, Pharaoh's magicians became less able to duplicate these effects. That's something that's worth studying, but we're not going to talk a lot about it on this particular podcast. So Pharaoh begins to offer some compromises to the original request, which was that Pharaoh let all Israel go with all of their belongings and all of their people to go into the wilderness and worship the Lord. And uh, as these plagues came and got worse and worse, it was kind of interesting. He, he, he didn't want to do that. He had to maintain some control himself and make sure he was on top. But he was willing to compromise. He said, all right, you can sacrifice to your God. Just do it here in Egypt. And Moses explained, no, we're not going to do that here in Egypt. That would be way too dangerous. All your people think that our, our customs and our traditions are an abomination and they'll kill us. We're not going to do that. More plagues came. Eventually, he says, okay, well, you can go a short distance, but, you know, stay close. And then when the plague is over, eh, never mind. Never mind. You can't go at all. Um, there was a compromise he offered to let the people go, but they needed to keep all of their stuff there in Egypt. If you want to go, I, I need insurance or assurance that you're going to come back. Some kind of collateral. Um and Moses said, no, we need our animals for a feast and for sacrifice. Of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart again. How, how dare they not compromise and give me something? Um, and even after they 
they left Egypt, um, Pharaoh still was not ready to let them go. He was still upset. He, the compromise that he, he proposes by sending his armies is, fine, you can go, you just are going to die after. He didn't get any of the things that he proposed as compromises. Now, the details of that are things that we'll talk about in our podcast next week. For this week, let's talk about the plagues themselves, which are kind of amazing. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, the death of their cattle, boils, hail mingled with fire, locusts, darkness, and the destroying angel. Those are the ten plagues of Egypt. Now, there exist modern secularizers who would suggest that these events were mostly natural. You know, maybe it was a red algae that could have looked like blood, and it made the frogs jump out of the Nile, and that led to other things as they decayed, insects and lice and flies and the livestock getting sick and eventually boils coming on the people, other diseases, uh, as they had this bad hygiene from all from the water. And the storms and locusts, and, you know, that's just bad luck. Ironically, these same sorts of people who secularize all of these things frequently accuse faithful individuals of just using God as a crutch. You're just using God to explain stuff you don't understand. And at the same time, they're using hypothetical processes that may or may not exist in the natural world to explain things that they don't understand. Yeah, if I haven't seen it, it must not be real. It can only be done by something that I have seen. That's the only source for things that I don't understand. Um, in the end, I, I, I will point out, I'll, I'll confess, I don't know exactly how the plagues worked. Maybe it was some red algae that looked like blood. Maybe it was, uh, you know, a series of, of odd events that, uh, that timed up well. The point is that the source is God. And I 100% believe that God is absolutely capable of turning water into actual blood or into actual wine, or into whatever he wants. That God can send and stop these things in specific intervals. Frogs, and then totally independent of frogs, he doesn't need the frogs before the lice and the flies. He could have done that differently. Disease, storm, pestilence, darkness, he was in complete control. So it's important that we not let our need to explain something limit our views on God's capabilities. Maybe he's not going to send some big storm with hail mingled with fire to deliver you from your problems, but he absolutely could. And if you think that he can't, then you could stand to increase your faith, and you will need to increase your faith before he will. All right. 
The tenth plague is remembered throughout um, the world as the Passover. It's remembered through the observance of the Passover with a feast of unleavened bread. And this becomes important in uh, a variety of places uh, as we continue reading in the Old Testament. And also, it was important in New Testament events. Understanding this connection is critical to understanding Christianity. Now, the Hebrews were given specific instructions for preparing a meal. They were to use a lamb with no blemishes, and uh, they were to, to cook it with fire and ensure that no bones were broken. And if there were any leftovers, they weren't going to keep those. Anything left over were, was to be burned. Um, they would have bread made without leaven, not even leaven in their houses, uh, to make the bread rise. It was just like biscuits, like cracker-type uh, bread with flour. They were to have bitter herbs that they eat. And they were to eat this whole meal standing, dressed, ready to depart. And of course, the most memorable part the blood of the lamb that was killed was to be placed on the posts of the doors so that the destroying angel would pass over the places marked by the blood of the lamb. Now, <clears throat> some movies will depict this as some dark fog that seeps through the, the areas of Egypt and, uh, and poisons just the firstborn in Egyptian houses. Um, uh, that's not the way I picture it, but I guess one way or the other, the effect is the same. The destroying angel passed over the houses that were marked with the blood of the lamb. And those that were not marked, the firstborns of all of Egypt, they were slain. The parallels here to Christ are unmistakable, an unbroken lamb without blemish, totally innocent, killed with no bones broken, and his blood marking and protecting those who receive it, allowing the repentance of the faithful. Those who are unmarked are subject to the power of the decrees of God, the laws and the punishments affixed thereto. His people are not only those who were marked by the blood of the Lamb, but who stood ready to do as he asked, to follow him to deliverance. In the end, we have to do specific things so that Christ's sacrifice marks us as forgivable. And these include, of course, faith, repentance, and baptism. This is how the, the blood of the Lamb can mark us as being able to be passed over and saved. God has the power to do small things, but also great things on behalf of those who have faith in him. And ultimately, just as it was for Pharaoh, the choice is ours whether to harden our hearts or not. We appreciate all the support for the Ward Preacher podcast. 
Next week, we will look at Exodus 14 through 17, sustaining the prophet and parting the sea. Of course, there is a ton of stuff that we did not cover in the reading for this week. Please study that individually and with your family. And of course, as always, fight on.